is the 29th of June, 1726. A sultry summer day in Boston, Massachusetts. Three young boys run down the streets towards the harbor. Laughing, they skip and skid over the cobbles, trying not to fall. As they turn a corner, they catch a glimpse of the river beyond, and over the heads of the dock workers already lining the quayside, they see a sail coming into view. The boys push and elbow their way through, slipping between legs, squeezing to the front, hoping to catch a glimpse of the vessel that now sails into port. And there she is, like a ghost ship drifting silently over the water, a two-masted snow. Sails tattered, her hull split in places, wooden handrails splintered. The boys whisper to each other, pointing at the scars of battle, the stains of bloodshed. Even the adult onlookers murmur with interest when they see the weather-worn, beaten-looking man chained to the main mast. 27-year-old sailor William Fly is clapped in irons, imprisoned on his own ship by his own crew, a decrepit group of sailors who claim to be his prisoners. The facts will soon emerge that just a few months earlier, the crew, including Boson Mr. Fly, had set sail from Jamaica, departing Kingston Harbour for Africa's Guinea coast. But the ship, Elizabeth, would never reach her destination. Instead, she turns pirate, and now many of the crew are dead, including her original captain, John Green. The locals will ask, as ever, what could possess men to commit such wickedness? Are they pushed into it by others, driven by greed? Or are they born evil? As William Fly floats up the Charles River in chains, one of the young boys on the docks breaks away from his mates. He runs the short distance towards Old North Church, where he shares the news with a senior parishioner. The parishioner seeks out a church elder, who carries the news to the home of the senior pastor, Reverend Dr. Cotton Mather. It's news that the 63-year-old Puritan minister is always eager to hear that a pirate sails into Boston. Martha immediately clears his schedule and begins sorting through the clutter of books and papers in his study. Among his many talents, Dr. Cotton Martha is the renowned pirate preacher, and William Fly will be his final project. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, 
making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, going back to its founding, Boston has been the imperial grey zone of maritime lawlessness. In the past, it welcomed pirates. At times, it even relied on them for its survival. But through bloody years of piracy's so-called golden age, it's been terrorized by them, tormented by the very monsters that it once nurtured. Now, in the late 1720s, American colonies like Massachusetts Bay in New England have successfully suppressed piracy. Hangings, once unheard of, have become commonplace. Forsaken sailors, many of them Boston's own wayward sons, swing lifeless above the docks, their fates serving as a warning to others, a symbol of the changing tide. But every so often, a maritime derelict still slips through the cracks the last of whom is William Fly. In the space of a few short months, Fly has gone from honest bosun to pirate captain to dead man walking. A cautionary tale told in double speed. In 1726, Reverend Dr. Cotton Mather, the 63-year-old Puritan minister, is still the greatest moral voice against pirates in New England. Though his life has been dogged by scandal and his spirit diminished by tragedy, he's still a political heavyweight and community leader. A crusader from a bygone era, the firebrand cleric still holds sway in universities and courtrooms on both sides of the Atlantic. The first American-born fellow of London's Royal Society, Martha is a prolific publisher, author of over 400 works, including histories, scientific papers, theological treatises, and pamphlets on moral guidance. But first and foremost, throughout his career, he has always sought to fight evil where he finds it. And in Boston, the devil appears most readily from the sea. The Puritan minister's name is all too familiar to damned pirates, that they might curse his name while at sea. They seek him out when the hangman calls. In his own diary, he writes, one of the first things which the pirates who are now so much the terror of them haunt the sea impose on their poor captives is to curse Dr. Mather. The pirates now strangely fallen into the hands of justice here make me the first man whose visits and counsels and prayers they beg for. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. He felt that pirates were basically violating 
every single thing that God had set out for the universe. So Cotton Mather believed that those who joined piracy were those who were morally degenerate, those who had strayed away from the church and true values, probably being too isolated at sea for too long of a period of time. And so he made it his kind of life's work to go in and try to rehabilitate these pirates, going to the prisons and getting them to repent. Having spent more time with pirates than any other authority in the colonies, today Mather's writings are invaluable in helping us understand these maritime criminals, in particular those facing execution. But he is also a key author of how pirates were perceived by the public and in the press during the Golden Age, and so he has a hand in shaping their legend. His chance meeting with William Fly comes at a time when he thought he'd seen it all, heard it all before. And yet his interviews with a seemingly insignificant pirate does more than any other contemporary source to show how far popular narratives and myth have obscured the lived realities of those sailors, as saying goes, caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. It's the 6th of July, 1726. William Fly's short trial has ended. Just a week after being hauled into Boston in chains, the 27-year-old pirate languishes in a dark, dank cell, awaiting his date with death alongside three others. Dr. Cotton Mather walks through the subterranean corridors of Boston Prison, his powdered white wig and starched collar catching in the occasional beams of daylight, filtering through barred windows. He introduces himself to the pirates and launches into a well-practiced routine, encouraging the condemned men to admit their depravities, renounce their crimes, and repent so they can escape the damnation of hell. Three of the pirates happily submit to Mather's instructions, but Fly is unmoved. At first, he maintains his innocence, denying all involvement in the murder of the ship's master and first mate, the crimes for which he's due to hang. Mather won't tolerate it. Fly, I am astonished at your stupidity, he says. I cannot understand you. I am sure you don't understand yourself. I shall be better able another time to reason with you. Fly retorts with a quickness of thought that surprises Mather. It is very strange another should know more of me than I do of myself. The Puritan minister is stuck for a response. But Fly is not the first impenitent pirate he's dealt with. He doubles down, recalling his encounter with another sailor, John Archer, whom he successfully reformed before execution. As preacher to pirates, it's Mather's greatest success. He advises Fly to read his accompanying sermon, The Converted Sinner. Though once again, Fly's response stuns him. Dr. Stephen Pitt is a maritime historian and authority on colonial Boston. One of the first things that Mather says to Fly when he meets him in prison is, you should read The Converted Sinner. And William Fly says, I've read that already, and he's rejected it. So he's already heard the story of John Archer his conversion, his declaration of himself being a sinner before the masses, that seafarers should seek a godly life and turn away from being pirates. And William Fly has already rejected that notion. So Fly comes into this debate with Mather 
already armed with knowledge. And so he's a, a much tougher nut to crack than Archer and previous pirates that Mather has met with in prison. Mather walks away frustrated by the defiant pirate. Besides his arrogance and pride, Fly seems to challenge Mather on an intellectual level, something few pirates have managed in the past. Over the course of 22 years, Cotton Mather has witnessed the entire outbreak of the Golden Age, personally interacting with dozens of pirates in prison, and nearly all were repentant before the end. As he goes home that night, he casts his memory back over the past two decades, considering the lessons he has learned. Back in the year 1700, Cotton Mather has already established himself as a celebrity figure in Boston and New England, for better or for worse. Preaching from his pulpit in Old North Church, he's no stranger to controversy. But his name is also marked by scandal, most recently for his dubious role in the Salem Witch Trials of 1692, his first duel with the devil in New England. He's made political enemies too, as one of the leading hands inciting an armed revolt to overthrow the royal governor of Boston in 1689, Mather's doomed attempt to restore the ancient rule of Puritan law over the colony. Since the colony's foundation, the clergy have presided over the people as both religious guardians and political leaders, and the Mather family has long been one of the most powerful. But the old ways are fading fast. So uh, what happened is in 1684, King Charles II revoked the Massachusetts uh, Charter. That's where you had all the religious authority locked up by the ministers. And when they lost that charter, they lost a lot of their power. So that's kind of the beginning of what Cotton Mather saw as a real decline in Boston's religiosity. In Mather's eyes, the future of the American colonies is in peril, and Boston is no exception. Its economy is in the dumps, disease is rampant, and waves of immigration threaten its cultural cohesion. The ministers are losing a grip on power, as well as their sway over the people. Hurtling into the 18th century, threatened on all sides by foreign powers, the colony's survival is deeply dependent on two things, ships and sailors. I mean, one thing that's important to understand about colonial Boston, especially from about 1700 to about 1713, is that its maritime community is increasing exponentially. The shipbuilding industry is rising. The seafaring community is the largest in English and then eventually British North America. So this is a this is a rising port and it's based on seafarers and maritime commerce. The trade routes and shipping lanes are an economic lifeline. But they also pose a challenge. Every ship that comes into dock not only brings goods and gold, they also bring a certain class of men. And with them come new ideas. Ideas that are a corrupting influence on New England society. Sailors, who that's primarily who became pirates, their culture is beginning to infiltrate 
Bostonian youth, and he has quite a few sermons uh, that address that issue of sailors culture permeating the youth, causing irreligiousness, increasing the amount of profanity, increasing the amount of drinking, increasing the amount of gambling. Mather is deeply suspicious of all seafarers to start with. But at the turn of the century, a new breed of mariners is emerging. Men who threaten the colony's collective soul. And Boston seems to be at the heart of it. One of these undesirables is Captain William Kidd, a notorious privateer turned pirate, arrested in Boston in 1699. Mather has a brief but important encounter with him before he's packed off back to Britain to face trial. Kidd is raging, insisting on his innocence. He doesn't see himself as a pirate. But then, neither did Thomas Chew of Rhode Island, nor Adam Baldridge, who recently returned from the Red Seas. Whilst they may argue over the legal definitions of piracy, murder and theft are sins, an offence to the laws of God. To Mather, it's cut and dry. Kidd's trial is a landmark case. Piracy will not be tolerated. No excuse will wash. The outcome makes headlines across the English-speaking world. So, after Kidd, there is a really big increase in sermons on pirates and sailors in London, and it's very negative. Many London ministers, primarily Anglican ministers, are arguing that English seafarers are not loyal to their country, that they're deserting en masse, they're not fighting hard enough for the crown, and they're mutinying. And Mather's reading those sermons, and there's just a general sense that the seafaring tribe is degenerating over that time period. Mather is greatly concerned by this new trend, but still harbors hopes of reforming Boston's maritime community, maybe even recruiting them to his cause. Right after he met with uh, William Kidd, he kind of begins to engage more with the seafarers in his congregation. He begins writing about them in his diary. And then he publishes a really important sermon called The Religious Mariner. And in this sermon, he chastised Boston seafarers for their drinking, their profanity, their gambling and the like. But then he goes on to say how useful their labor is and that they could be Protestant missionaries that could go down to the Spanish colonies and convert Catholics to Protestantism. So he had really high hopes for seafarers and their ability to engage in the Puritan religion. But Mather's hope is misplaced. In the coming years, more and more Boston men will turn to the pirate life, and more and more will end their lives either at sea or on the gallows. He starts attending to captured pirates held in New England's prisons, trying to get closer to these men, hoping to better understand them, or rather how better to turn others from following them. After 1700, as a method to suppress pirates in the colonies, a change in the law allows local admiralty courts to try and execute pirates without jury, wherever they're caught. It's a game-changer for Cotton Mather, 
who will now preside over the final words of those commended in New England. Moreover, it's a game-changer to those pirates caught in American waters. Men like Boston's own John Quelch. It's 3 p.m. on the 27th of June, 1704. Pirate John Quelch and six members of his crew are about to be hanged on the mudflats outside of Boston Harbor. They are the first to be executed outside of England. They won't be the last. Quelch is a local sailor, and his hanging draws a massive crowd. Aside from the throngs lining the streets and docks, over 150 boats and canoes all gather in the harbor to witness the spectacle. This will be Cotton Mather's congregation for his first pirate execution sermon. As he anxiously reviews his notes, he remains oblivious to the strange mood of the crowd. Anticipation, but also unease. For many people in Boston, they actually didn't consider Quelch to be a pirate. So while he was hanged for piracy, there was quite a bit of backstory there that many people in Boston were, were actually not in favor of this act. And the pirates themselves did not actually think of their act as piracy. They very much thought they were part of a legacy of people bringing silver and gold to Boston because the Boston was starved of hard currency and these people were needed to bring in uh, that gold and silver. For generations, New England has welcomed smugglers, black marketeers, and pirates. It's how they've survived on the far side of the world. But to the Reverend Cotton Mather, the issue is black and white. Quelch is a criminal and a sinner of the worst kind. His ill-gotten gains corrupt all who come into contact with it. It's late afternoon, and dusk is fast approaching. In the mouth of the Charles River, the Puritan minister stands on top of the Admiralty Court boat, the Silver Oar, with the massed flotilla of rowboats gathered around him, providing a floating parish. Despite his age and experience, the 41-year-old Cotton Mather is nervous. He can now sense the tension in the crowd. He clears his throat and with fierce passion launches into his sermon. Lord, may those our dear brethren be saved from the temptations which do so threaten them. He is articulate, imposing, and intelligent, working the audience into fervent approval. By the end of it, he's greeted with a great cheer. Mather lets the applause wash over him, luxuriating in his own righteousness. But the show isn't over yet. The pirates are given their chance to speak. Mather has schooled them. They are to admit sin beg forgiveness, and conclude by warning others not to follow their path. Yet when Quelch steps up to speak, he goes defiantly off script. I desire to be informed for what I have done. I am condemned only upon circumstances. I forgive all the world so the Lord may be merciful to my soul. 
the unrepentant sailor does offer a final warning to his peers, but not the one Mather intended. Quelch cautions those that might follow him that the mercantile hands that once fed them now ties the noose. They should also take care how they brought money into New England to be hanged for it. The crowd now cheer even louder. They lap up Quelch's descent. Many even cry for him to be released. Fortunately, it's not up to the mob to decide. The pirates are marched across the wobbling planks of wood which lie beneath the seven swinging nooses, which are then fixed around seven trembling necks. According to the presiding judge, Samuel Seawall, you could hear women cry from a mile away. Three high tides will wash over their bodies before they're cut down. There's something biblical about the punishment, as if the ocean is washing away the pirate's sin. In Boston, justice and religion has triumphed. At least for now. Cotton Mather, meanwhile, walks away, his mind buzzing. The public sympathy for these sinners has shocked him, but also inspired him. There's a growing fascination with these criminals, and the entire public is at risk of falling into sin themselves by association. As he hurries home, searing words spin through his mind, mentally penning the pamphlets to come. His quest, his moral mission, has begun. The Quelch execution gave him a taste of the popularity that he could receive from being at the head of this execution, giving a really powerful sermon in front of hundreds to thousands of people. That had a profound impact on Mather. It's really this moment around 1700 where he's starting to really think about his reputation internationally. For two decades, Cotton Mather will spit fire and brimstone from his Boston pulpit on the subject of mariners and their wicked ways, the temptations of the sea, and the damning allure of the pirate life. His congregations will swell, and Mather's name will become synonymous with the fight against piracy in the Americas. He also discovers that there is a commercial market for his anti-piracy sermons, sold as pamphlets to fascinated readers and reprinted in the Boston Newsletter the most prominent news source in North America. So you not only have the experience in Boston, but this is then shared throughout the English Atlantic world, not only in London, but also down to New York City and Philadelphia and the like. So this is spread through not only the sermons, but there's also newspapers accounts. So you're starting to get kind of mass media and that drives the popularity of these pirate executions. As the issue of piracy grows, it makes sense that Mather's initial human sympathy for common sailors quickly becomes drowned out by the campaign of moral outrage. In fact, he comes full circle, now instructing ship's masters how best to keep their men in check. The tone really changes in 1709 with his sermon, The Sailor's Companion where he actually, at the beginning of it, 
lists out all the punishments that ship captains can dole out to their seafarers if they misbehave. So he goes from chastising ship captains for their abuse of sailors to saying that here are the laws that allow you to abuse your sailors. His timing couldn't be better. Despite his public prominence, by 1715, the year the peak golden age really begins, Mather's finances are in disarray and he's evicted from his home. Mather was in a really desperate financial straits. I imagine that these sermons on pirates were extremely popular and he clearly wrote them for a popular audience. If you read his other sermons, they're not nearly as dramatic. So why is he dramatizing these pirate stories versus many of his other sermons? And my suspicion on that is that he was trying to sell these pirate stories. There's also a curious feedback loop forming. The more wicked the pirates are depicted, the more fascinated people are by them. The more fascinated people are, the more Mather sells and his reputation increases. The same is true for newspapers. A narrative force is growing. He knew exactly how to stir up his audience, both in person and on the page. And so as a result, publishing his sermons into collections such as Useful Remarks was very successful for him. It was a very lucrative endeavor because people were purchasing his works. So he definitely had a very large effect on the public. Some might suppose that Mathers exploiting human executions for profit is at odds with his religious mission. But Mather likely doesn't see it that way. If there's a conflict between Mather's use of pirate executions, the dramatization, and his own pocketbook, I don't think he himself would have seen a conflict between those two issues. He did truly believe that he could influence Boston's youth to not follow the example of these pirates. If there is a conflict darkening Mather's mind, it isn't to do with those seafarers being hanged for piracy. It's to do with one seafarer in particular, his only son, or rather, his only surviving son. He had multiple children that died at young ages from smallpox and measles. In fact, it was over uh, a dozen children during his life. Only two of his children survived him, uh, one son and one daughter. His son, Increase Mather, known as Creasy, has already caused some heartbreak by refusing to become a Protestant minister like his father and forefathers before him. Instead, in April of 1715, Creasy does the unthinkable. He goes out to sea with a merchant crew bound for London. He joins the legions of the morally corrupt. While he's away, Creasy goes into debt and becomes stranded in London. Despite his initial refusal to aid his wayward son, rumors of Creasy's dissolute behavior make their way back home. It's more than Mather Sr. can bear. He parts with what limited funds he has to bail out his boy and bring him back to Boston. But upon Creasy's return, he meets further scandal. He impregnates a woman out of wedlock 
attends riots, and runs up debts around town. The situation torments his Puritan father. He can help the most wicked sinners in the world, but he cannot minister to his own household. Mather has failed his duty as a pastor and as father. He takes it to heart. In his diary, he writes, I consider the sins of my son as being my own. I think that increase going to sea really hardened Mather's opinions towards all seafarers. And it's kind of at that moment that he starts to not draw a distinction between just a, a common sailor working on a merchant ship and a pirate. In 1717, Mather works his most famous pirate execution sermon to date, with the surviving crew of the Scourge of New England, Captain Black Sam Bellamy. Whilst on the gallows, Mather rages, declaring all nations agree to treat your tribe as common enemies of mankind and extirpate them out of the world. Between 1717 and 1724, the piracy problem will explode, becoming a crisis that will grip the transatlantic world. Mather will become more and more hardline, but public attitudes are also shifting. The kind of sympathies reserved for Quelch and Kidd are soon forgotten, as a new breed of villain emerges that preys on its own kind. A generation of pirates that declares themselves the enemies of all nations. Pirates like Samuel Burgess, Charles Vane and Blackbeard will attack American seaports without remorse, turning on the New England merchants who once depended on them. People are reading Cotton Mather's writings, and you've got loads of people who are agreeing with him. Pirates are the scum of the earth. Pirates are absolutely degenerate. They have no morals. But at the same time, it also is igniting that fire we get when we hate something so much, it just makes us fascinated about them, kind of similar to our fascination with serial killers. And the crowd eats this up. They go wild for it because it's not what they're expecting. It's even better. It's juicier. And the newspapers love it because this is going to make for great entertainment to print. Newspapers in the 18th century were just as much about clickbait as we were, for a lack of a better term. All about selling and booksellers loved it because they could get these observations and they could sell it as well. In print, poems and plays, pirates are portrayed as the godless anarchists that have now become legendary. But like all stereotypes, though based partly on truth, the reality is far more complex. Eventually, some will come to realize that the solution to piracy isn't just in seeking to destroy them at sea or saving their souls in their final hours, but preventing men from temptation in the first place. The fact that Cotton Mather is one of the first to realize this given his hardened attitude, seems nothing short of a miracle. But something happens in 1724 that will cause him to begin to reassess. In the spring of that year, Creasy returns to sea as a sailor aboard a vessel bound for England and then the West Indies. Whilst his son is mid-voyage, Cotton Mather receives a letter that the ship has foundered and Creasy is dead. Cotton's pain is unimaginable. He writes in his diary, Ah, my son increase, my son, my son, 
My head is waters and my eyes are a fountain of tears. I am overwhelmed. But Creasy's misspent youth and tragic death forces Cotton to once again look upon the seafarer community, inspired to save others from the fate that befell his son. He also perhaps will treat his next subject with a little less righteous scorn and a little more human sympathy. When he has to finally come to grips with the fact that Increase had indeed died at sea, he writes in his diary that his seafaring son had done no good in the world, but Mather was going to write a sermon for the rest of the Boston community. So it's very similar to what he does with sermons on pirates. There's kind of this direct connection between how he sees his son's death and how he can influence his congregation to how he sees the pirate community and seafarers more generally in Boston. Around this time, in May 1724, two more pirates come into Boston to face trial. John Archer and William White. Mather becomes fixated on them, meeting with them in their cells for almost a month, ministering to them, schooling them, attempting to reform them. John Archer had once sailed with Blackbeard in 1718, before accepting the king's pardon that year. But he soon returned to the sea under the black flag, a fatal decision Archer now deeply regrets. On the day of their execution, the 2nd of June, 1724, Archer and White perform their roles to perfection. They are the very model of contrition and regret. Archer begs God's forgiveness for his sins. But there is something more. Even this remorseful sailor, after reading his scripted lines with heartfelt sincerity, has his own personal warning to add. I could wish that masters of the vessels would not use their men with so much severity, as many of them do, which exposes us to great temptations. Few care what reason men like Archer have for their crimes. Evil is evil. Their souls are corrupt. What more do you need to know? While he justifies his actions that the ship captains treated them very poorly, he does say that, but that is not the lifestyle that a sailor should choose, that they should seek solace in God and that they should turn away from the pirate lifestyle. Archer and White hang. The audience cheer. But Mather contemplates. In 26 years of admonishing sailors and drawing out confessions, Archer's reformation is the most complete. It's Mather's crowning achievement. But a small seed has also been planted in the minister's mind. Something he knew long ago, but over time had been lost beneath grand moral rhetoric. I think that Archer is the catalyst for him beginning to see pirates again and sailors again as human. So I truly believe that it was Archer that began that process. Archer is Mather's greatest success. But if he is moved by Archer's final words, it does not move him to reform his opinions entirely. On the outside, at least, 
Mather is as high-handed as ever. He has proved without doubt his own ministerial power to reform. If monsters like Archer and White can find the elect of God with his help, anyone can achieve redemption. Or so he thinks. Two years later, in the summer of 1726, Mather is locked in debate with the belligerent William Fly, deep in the rank, humid bowels of Boston prison. Despite the challenge this young sinner presents, he is confident in his powers. Fly will repent in the end, just as Archer had done. But the pirate's insults and shameless taunting pushes Mather's own temper to breaking point. When Fly mocks his great work, the converted sinner, Mather decides he will make an example of the cocky youth. But Fly has his reasons as to why he will never submit to authority, be that government or God. Although William Fly is considered by many to be a pathetic example of a pirate, his legacy is secured by what happens after his capture. Only six days remain until William Fly is hanged and the golden age of pirates is over. But Fly has his own important truth he is waiting to announce, loud and clear for all to hear. Words that will echo through time. Next time on Real Pirates. In court, William Fly's tale is told in brutal detail by traumatized witnesses. Cotton Mather continues to battle it out with the unrepentant pirate in the subterranean cells of Boston Prison. Both men are pushed to the extreme, making for a historic final showdown on the gallows. The spectacle will bring down the curtain on the golden age of Atlantic piracy, and Fly's last words will have a lasting effect on their legacy. Find out next time on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boro for Parcast, produced by McAllister Beckson, written by Aman Khalid, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, sound design by Matthias Torres Sole, mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.